we're going to be diving in to this section um, that you have known as the armor of God. You've known about this, maybe you've been taught this before, and I believe now more than ever is it is necessary for us as a church to understand what the Apostle Paul has been writing for centuries to the church, for believers to know, and now for us to understand together. So let's start by reading in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and have sh as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray as we begin our time together in the word. Father, Lord, I come to you now. I pray that you speak through me. Give me boldness. Give me clarity, Father, as I seek to be faithful to your word. Father, I pray for the hearts of our people, those who are in Christ, those who are saved, and those who are outside of a saving relationship with you, God. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts today. Pray that we would be reminded of the gospel yet again and again and again and the true blessings that flow from our relationship in Christ with you now. I pray all this in your son's name, amen. The Christian life is no picnic. It's not meant to bring you earthly pleasure or ease. It is not intended to be comfortable or void of sorrow and pain. Rather, what the word of God shows us is that the Christian life is difficult. Christ has called you to count the cost, to bear your cross daily, to come after him with everything you have. And what that entails is that the Christian life is a struggle. According to Ephesians 6 and other passages, the Christian life is not just a struggle, it's a war. It's a battle, a hard-fought battle. Yet many of you who are in Christ, this is well, oh, too well to be true. As a believer, you wake up every day knowing the pressures that you are going to face. As you get up, you anticipate the weight of your own sin in light of the grace of God. You're aware of the temptations that never cease to 
to strain or to give up, it feels like. You're well aware that every day you wake up and you go through life and you look around in this wicked world and you just are shocked at the weakness of man, at the sinfulness of mankind and how evil we've become. The Christian life is difficult to say the least and some seasons of life are much harder than others. I say this not to throw ourselves a pity party, but to remind us of this, is that this believer is what we have agreed to. This is what you, in some ways, have signed up for. This is the cost of discipleship that many of you have decided in faith. And the reason that you, many of you, have decided to go into this this manner of life is because the gospel is just that good to you. The richness, the immeasurable wealth that no amount of loss in this life could ever rob you of the hope or the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. And it's that joy and it's that hope that gives you reason to fight. It's because of him. It's because of Christ. It's because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but not only that, it's because you have been united to Christ. It's because of your union with him, and as Christ suffered, as Christ fought, as Christ went through the fire, as Christ was crucified, because you are now one with Christ because of your faith, what should you expect in your life, believer? You should expect nothing less than what Christ received in his life. And what did Christ do? He fought. Christ was a warrior. Christ is a warrior that is worth you and I fighting for today in the church. This is what the Apostle Paul understood. If you have eyes to see what's happening in this world, it's the same world that the Apostle Paul lived in the same sinful heart of man, so prone to wander, so distracted, so easily finding a sense of fulfillment in the world instead of how God has designed us to be, which is to find our joy and our greatest fulfillment in him. And if you look around, we live in an age where God is hated, similar to the apostle Paul. An age where the creature mankind is worshipped just like that of the age of the Apostle Paul. An age that what once was all good and right and wise is now deemed as foolish in the eyes of man. But we should not be surprised by this, right? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. As I was meditating this week on the world that we are in, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, what What the Apostle Paul say to encourage the church today, to encourage you today, believer? Better yet, what would Christ himself say to encourage you and I today in the church? This is why I believe Ephesians 6 matters so much. This is why I believe not only the whole letter of Ephesians, 
is practical and helpful and rich for you and I today. But Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20 give us not only instruction and direction for us of how we ought to live our lives in a moral aim, but the apostle Paul reveals for us and writes to us over 2,000 years ago, the ageless timeless, unchanging call for the church of Christ to do one thing, and it is this, it's to stand firm. Stand firm in the battle. If you guys look in your Bibles in this text, we can see that Paul says this. We see it for the first time in verse 11. The goal of the Christian, the goal of the church is to what? It is to stand against the schemes of the devil is to hold your ground. He repeats this again in verse 13. He says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to what? To stand firm. Again in verse 14, stand therefore, believer. Don't fall asleep spiritually. Don't even lay down. Don't even sit down. Stand because you are in a war. It's a military term that's used of a soldier who's digging his heels into the ground as the enemy is pressing on closer and closer and surrounding him. You do not flee. You stand firm. You hold your ground. I think it's helpful to also notice that Paul does not give instruction for you and I to take more ground. The instruction from our captain here, the Apostle Paul, is not, hey, you need to advance into enemy territory. You need to go further. You need to, to, to fulfill what was lacking in Christ as if there's anything there. The Apostle Paul also does not say that you are to be the hero of the story and wield your own sword and carve your own path. The Christian life doesn't promise this. The Christian life does not promise our own strength to provide victory. But what the promise is this, is that if you stand firm, there is hope for you. Church, hold your ground. Believer, stand firm. Stand firm. What I mean by that is this, is sink your feet into what has already been won by Christ. You could stand firm, but if you're standing firm on wet grass, you will slip. If you're standing firm and the foundation that you're standing upon is covered with oil, you will fall. But for the believer, the object that you are standing firm in is the faith. This is what Paul writes about elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians, he speaks of this. In Galatians, he writes of this. Here in Ephesians, he speaks of this, that you are called to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. It is to build your house on the solid rock who is Christ. Immovable, unshakable, unbreakable truth that no matter how hard the enemy is pressing against you, as long as you are standing upon the rock, that rock will never fail. That is your hope. 
That is the hope that the Apostle Apostle Paul felt. And this is what he understood, that just like a soldier is to stand firm, just like when Israel was afraid of the Egyptians in Exodus 14, 13, and they were surrounded by them, what is this instruction that God is giving the Israelites? It's to stand firm. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, when the nation of Israel, when Judah was under attack from the enemies, when all hoped seemed lost, when the king turned his eye to the Lord, what was the instruction from God? It was stand firm and behold the salvation of the Lord before you. And in the same way, church, just like we're in war, you and I have now been called to stand firm, to hold the line, to not compromise. This is what the battle is over, is it not? The battle before us is what Paul has encouraged and has been pleading with us earlier in Ephesians 4 verse 1. It's to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's to live in a way that brings glory to God. To stand firm is to not compromise God's glory for your own. And if you're to look in scripture at who was the epitome of this first and foremost, who captured the whole idea of compromise so well, it was the religious leaders of the time of Christ. It was the Pharisees, was it not? In John 12, what does Jesus say of them? They have chosen the glory of man over the glory of God. Believer, you want to stand firm because God's glory is just that good to you. God's glory specifically in the gospel is just that rich for you. That the thought of compromising isn't even an option It was never an option for Christ. Christ stood firm in his life, did he not? Because he saw the glory of God the Father and the joy that was set before him as greater than anything he could go through. The call here in Ephesians 6 to stand firm, it matters because really of what we see in verse 12. The church is called to stand firm in the same way as if it's a, in a military sense, as if we're in a warrior. Verse 12 in our text this morning shows us the real reason why we stand firm. Look at verse 12. Paul says the reason for this is because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against one another. We're not fighting against a physical opponent who has flesh and blood like you and I. We're not fighting, we're not wrestling, we're not toiling with someone that we could simply have victory over if they lose their life. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that you and I, the church, we have an enemy who is greater than us. We have an enemy who is stronger than us. We have an enemy who is ruthless in his schemes and his strategies, who is a mastermind at work, We have an enemy that we must know about because he is real. 
And he is at work. And he has been at work from the beginning, from Genesis 3. With one objective, with one aim, and it is to destroy everything good that God has made. To destroy his plan. This is why we must stand firm, because we know that our enemy, he is great. He is smart, he is crafty, he is powerful. Without Christ, you and I, we are hopeless. Without the Lord, we don't stand a chance against the schemes of the devil, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Not only are we in a war believer, but we are behind enemy lines. In the midst of all of this, there's hope. There's hope that is not potential. It is certain. There is certain hope. And verse 12 gives us really the scouting report of our enemy. I remember as an athlete getting the scouting report of the other team. Verse 12 here is our scouting report against our enemy. We know who he is. We know that he is contrary to God, that he is of lies, of deceit, and that he is the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, that he is the one who is presently working over the present world that you and I reside in right now. And there's reason to be afraid of that, of course, if you're outside of Christ. If you don't know Christ, when you don't consider the cosmic powers, this, this high-level supernatural power that is at work, that is an invisible realm that you and I don't often see, that we don't get a glimpse of, but is actually happening, a war every day that is seeking to entice you to sin, that is seeking to pull you away from Christ. And Satan has been brilliant in his schemes for so long. He has sought to attack God in his creative design that goes back to creation, right? Attacking gender, attacking sexuality, attacking God's design for marriage, attacking, attacking God's design for the family. We see these attacks, these schemes that have been happening even from the beginning. We also see personal attacks. That maybe you feel the attack, the temptation of lust, of pride, of anger, of anxiety, of depression. And the enemy, he's using all of these tactics to do one thing, and it's to get your eyes off of Jesus Christ. To get your eyes off of the truth. And if Satan is one in that, you should be worried, believer. So what this sermon really is, is a reminder to keep your eyes on Christ, to remember the strength, to remember the armor, to recognize the true provision that we have now in God, no matter what attacks come our way. 
Whether it's a personal attack like I've just mentioned or a doctrinal attack through false teachers or even just simply the deceit of modern pleasures and comfort, Satan knows what he's doing. And he knows our tendencies. He's watched mankind since the fall. Do you think he's got a master understanding of who we are, of what we're capable of, of just the right pinch points, of just where to apply just enough pressure to get us to fail? He does. Our enemy is real and he knows what he's doing. For a while in the early church, there were external attacks and there certainly are external attacks on the church today through persecution, believers suffering for Christ, reminded of Stephen and James and the apostles and just the suffering that they endured, let alone all the other faithful men and women through history who suffered, who fought the good fight, who stood firm despite these external attacks outside the church coming from the government, coming from, from other false religions. They stood firm. The internal attacks, of course, being an attack in the early church on the doctrine of Christ. Satan understood that if he could deviate anything early on at the birth of the church, it would be a false heresy of who Christ is and what he's done. So he sought in every way to distract the church, to distort the, the theology of who Christ is and what he's done, to rob the church of that. Of course, this morphed Philip. Philip um, Philosophy has infiltrated the church, philosophic thinking, but not only that, paganism. Breaching the walls of the church, not just today, but 1,500 years ago of plus. Now creating this pseudo-Christianity that has created this false sense of assurance or a false sense of what real believers ought to look like. Guys, all of this are the schemes of the devil. They are his strategies. They don't happen overnight. It is a subtle drift away from the truth when you and I decide that we are gonna stand firm on almost everything except maybe this one part. It's when we decide that, you know, we don't have to stand super firm on these core biblical doctrines of the gospel. It's when we compromise the glory of God for the glory of man. Yet in the midst of all these dark times in church history, these times of attack by Satan, these assaults against the church, my encouragement to you right now, Redemption Hill is this, there have always been men and women, there's always been a church that has stood firm. Men like the apostles, men like Ignatius, who before he's being offered to be eaten by a lion, he says this, allow me to become food for the wild beast through whose means it will be granted me to reach God. Men like Polycarp, who before he was burned to the stake says, 80 and six years I've served Christ. Nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Men like Athanasius, John Huss, William Tyndale, whose last words before being strangled to death and his body being blown to bits by gunpowder says, oh Lord, open the king of England's eyes. 
There was not even an option to compromise. And this is just scraping the the tip of the iceberg, church, of men and women who have been steadfast. Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox. And the question is, is how did they do it? How did they do it? How did they stand firm in the truth? How did they anchor themselves so firmly that no matter what storm, no matter what tribulation or trial, no matter what scheme of Satan, whether it's in the church or outside the church, they would remain faithful? How is it? This is what our passage shows us today. And my encouragement, believer, is this. As I'm reminding you of Satan and his demonic realm and the influence that he has and the things that he, the strings that he is pulling behind the scenes, my prayer is that we would not be ignorant to that. But I say all of this because it is our turn, church. It is our turn. I say this not to discourage you but rather to raise you, to encourage you, to remind you of what an occasion we have today. Of what an opportunity you and I have today to be remembered for our faithfulness to the truth and go down in the archives of church history like these other faithful men and women who have stood firm. That's why this matters. They sought the glory of God over the glory of man, and we must do the same. That's what this is over. So we must be steadfast in the truth. We must stand firm. The question is, is this, and maybe you're asking yourself this, Jonah, how do you stand firm? How do you stand firm What caused these men and women to stand firm despite their circumstances, despite Satan's strategies? What did they have that enabled them to stand firm in the battle when all hope seemed lost? They had the truth, of course. They had the gospel. They had Christ. But there is a deeper level of aid that these believers understood that we must know. And this is the doctrine that you and I must comprehend. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you guys. It's this, the doctrine that the Lord gives divine provisions to believers by virtue of their union with Christ. That's the key in order to help them stand firm against the enemy. God the Father has given you and I a spiritually divine gift. He has given provisions in the battle. He has given aid. He is giving you and I something that comes to Christ and through Christ. And by vicariously now, because we are in Christ, we now receive that same provision. And we see that through the verses before us. And of course, we don't have time to go through all that. We're going to go through it the next four weeks. But what I do want to show you guys is just two of the divine provisions that God has given you and I, church, to stand firm. Two divine provisions. And the point of this sermon is very simple. It's this, stand firm, believer, because you have been given strength and you've been given protection from the gospel and through the gospel and by the gospel. And without them, you will fail. 
Let's look at these two provisions. The first one is found in verse 10. The apostle Paul says this, finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. What's the first provision? What's the provision of what? Spiritual strength. Notice with me that Paul doesn't say be strong and be, be stronger. He doesn't say be strong. You guys need to work out. You need to do these things. Rather, there is someone, there is something that is applying and, and giving you the strength. In fact, the word be strong, it is an, imp- an imperative. We are to be strong, but in the Greek, it's passive. It's this, be strengthened, be empowered, be given strength. And the object that, that supplies that strength is Yahweh. It is the Lord. He is the giver of that strength. I think we all know, it goes without saying that God is the God who is above all, who is greater than all, who is stronger than all. And there is nothing nor no one who can even compare to the strength of God let alone our enemy. And although Satan is strong, although he is crafty, God is wise, he is wiser, he is stronger. Therefore, what do we do, believer? Well, we need to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. The question then is this, is how do we do that? How do we actually find strength in God? How do we grow? How do we become spiritually stronger? Because you can sit here, you can open your Bible and be like, oh, I'm going to have to get stronger, right? I remember my dad coming in when I was a kid and a little toddler, and my dad would obviously have jokes with me as a kid, and he would say, all right, Jonah, be strong. And he would actually say, he would ask me to hulk out. And as a kid, I would look at my dad and I would just go, you know, I'd, I'd flex and I would just like want all my veins to be popping as a kid. And maybe you read that and that's kind of what you imagine is like, we need, okay, we just need to, we need to grit our teeth and we need to just be strong. But that's not the formula. That's not how God designed this. This is not what God has intended. What the apostle Paul was praying for the believers earlier in Ephesians chapter three is what? That they would be strong. If you guys turn earlier to chapter three, Paul says, starting in verse 14, he says this, for this reason, I bow my knees. What? This reason I pray before the father. And I'm praying for you, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, again, glory is the key here. We're not compromising the glory of God. What would happen? That God may grant us to what? To be strengthened. To be strengthened how? With power. Where does this power come from? Through his spirit, where? In your inner being. So Paul is praying essentially for the believers then and the believers now for us to be empowered with strength that comes from God through the spirit. Verse 17, for this reason, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you and I being rooted and grounded in love may what? May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love, there it is again, of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See what Paul's saying? He wants us to be strengthened by the Spirit, but the only way that we do that is that we have the strength to comprehend with all the other saints the height and the depth and the greatness of the glory of God found in the love of Christ. There was a survey done a few years back, and I read this from a commentator, and I feel like this really helps me capture the idea of what Paul's saying here through this little window. World War II soldiers were asked 
what would cause them to storm the beaches of Normandy, to storm Omaha Beach, knowing that they were climbing most likely to their deaths? What gave them the strength, the courage, knowing that they would probably be gunned down in the process? Their subsequent studies have shown that these heroes of D-Day, that they were that they asked, some of them did it out of respect or appreciation for the country, for the loved ones at home. But the reality is this, is that many, in fact, most of the soldiers expressed that the reason they did this was out of respect and out of appreciation for their commanding officer and fellow soldiers. The concept of fighting for one's country sometimes is is too big, it's too abstract. But risking one's life for for one's commander or for even the soldiers right beside him makes the goal worthwhile. Believer, your captain Christ, your commanding officer the one who is above you, the one who had a higher position than you. This Christ fought so firmly that he laid down his life for you in love. The love that Paul wants us to know, that the greatness of the love that Christ had with the Father for all eternity, that he laid that aside for the joy that was set before him to bring the Father glory and to love you and I while we were yet enemies to the cross. This is a love that we cannot fathom. This is a love that cannot be described with mere words of man. This is a love that Paul says in chapter one of Ephesians verse seven that we have redemption through what? Through his blood. That is our fellow soldier. That is our fellow commander, commanding officer. The love that in chapter two of Ephesians, the love that has made us alive together with Christ. The love that has raised us with Christ and the love that has now seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Believer, you want to be strengthened? You want to be motivated to stand firm? You want to be empowered to have this attitude? Remember the deep love that Christ had for you as a soldier, specifically in the love of how he laid down his life for you. No greater love is this, right? Than that one would lay down his life for who? For his friends. And I promise you this, the more that you know that, the more that that becomes real to you, the more that you understand just the height and the depth and the length and the immeasurable greatness and the measurable wealth that you have through the love of the Father in Christ and the love of Christ now to you, you cannot help but stand firm. Cannot help but do it. Compromising is not an option. The glory of God is too good. This helps us when we sin, does it not? Believer, when you feel tempted to sin, what do you need to remind yourself of? You need to remind yourself not only of the gospel, not only of just the truth, but you need to remind yourself of 
the love of Christ when you were dead in your sins, when you were an enemy of the cross. When you feel the pressure of the world, when you feel the weight of Satan's schemes looming around you, what do you do, believer? You go back to the love of your fellow soldier and because he laid down his life for you, how motivating is it for us to wanna lay down our life for him? This is the bond that the church has, believer. This is what we share together that the outside world does not comprehend is that we have understood this and we have committed ourselves to this together. That's where our unity comes from. We're strengthened by God through the gospel. And that strength is now provided for you because of what Christ has done. It is a provision. It is a blessing in the heavenly places. The supernatural spiritual strength to stand firm. The second provision. The second provision here, and this will be much shorter because it's going to segue into the weeks to come. Not only does God provide spiritual strength to help enable the church to stand firm, but number two, through the gospel, there is a provision of spiritual armor. Spiritual armor. If you guys look in verse 11, Paul says, put on. That's the idea of putting on like how earlier in chapter four, we are called to put on the new self. We are to actively put on something that has been given to us and it is what? It is the whole armor of God, not the part armor, not just one piece, but rather the five pieces of armor in the, in the sword that's been given to us that we will get into in the weeks to come. But we are called to, yield, to wield it, to put it on. Again, he says it in verse 13, therefore, because of the, the strategies, because of our enemy, therefore, what do we do? Well, we take up again the whole armor of God. We take it what rightfully belongs to us because of who we are in Christ. And the reason for that is because without the armor, verse 13, we will not be able to withstand in the evil day. And even having done everything, we will not be able to stand firm without this armor. We can stand firm, believer. We can hold the ground. We can be encouraged by the gospel. But if we do not know that we have the spiritual protection that comes through the gospel, we open ourselves up to vulnerability. We don't understand that there is actually not only strength, but there is protection through the gospel. We shouldn't have very much confidence. I love armor. That's why I love The Mandalorian so much, the show, because the armor is just sweet. That's why I love Lord of the Rings, because the armor just, I just wish I could wear armor. It's just so cool. I remember being in Prague and going up into this castle and I, I it was like the first time I've been seen, I've, I've seen medieval knight armor in these swords. And I was just like, let's go. I was getting fired up. I'm like, I want to just give me it, put, put it on me right now. And I thought, is that how I feel about the armor of God? Do I get excited about that armor? This spiritual armor, of course, it's not a physical one, but it is armor that God has given to us. But notice also what Paul says. How does he modify this armor? He says it belongs to who? It is the armor of who? It's the armor of God. 
It is God's armor. It's not this foreign armor that, oh, that's just supplied to the believer. Of course, Paul is probably looking at a Roman soldier as he's writing this, and he's going to go through all the pieces, and he's thinking about, wow, the believer must be suited for battle. But I do think there's more here that Paul is trying to allude to it with the armor, and for that, we need to go back to Isaiah 59. If you want to have a really under, a clear understanding of what Paul is actually doing here, we need to go to the Old Testament because this ties it all together, believer. Isaiah 59, if you guys could turn there with me. Isaiah 59. If there's a text that won't fire you up more than this, I don't know what will. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 14. Read with me this text. Isaiah writes, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. What is the reason for that? Well, because Satan has been at work. Satan and his schemes and his strategies have been worked to turn justice sideways, to pervert righteousness. Verse 15, truth is lacking. Why? Because Satan is the father of lies. And Israel has become susceptible to that. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and what happened? Well, it displeased him that there was no justice. So what does God do? He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Look at verse 17. Speaking of Christ, speaking of God, God, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who return from transgression declares the Lord. When Paul is writing here in Ephesians 6, what is he thinking about? What is this armor? He understands what Isaiah is writing here. He knows Isaiah's words. And when Paul says that we are given righteousness as a breastplate, helmet as a salvation, we are given armor of God, he is obviously thinking of Isaiah's words here. So much so to, to convey the idea for you and for me of this right here, believer. That the armor that you and I have has been worn before. It's like Jonathan giving his armor to David the son of the king Saul looking to David and saying, David, I'm gonna give you that which is most precious to me, my armor and my sword. Fashioned for me, but now I'm giving it to you as a gift. Christ is now giving you his armor. Armor that has never lost the battle. Armor that is stained with blood. Armor that is not able to be penetrated or pierced by any sword, by any sphere an armor that now belongs to you. Believer, this is why you can stand firm. This is why you can have courage. This is why you can have strength because God has given you through the gospel in Christ. He's given you not only strength and confidence that you can have courage to stand firm, but he's actually supplied you with the very protection as well. He's given you that. He's supplied that 
for you. And we now receive not only Christ and everything that he is, but we receive the blessings that flow through Christ in faith. There's a hymn that I found. It's called Stand Firm. It says, Stand Firm When the Enemy Charges. Your ranks in all his might, when sore indeed is the danger, which lies in the hot, fierce fight. Cower not in that hour of conflict when the test comes unto you, but in that hour of ours to God and yourself be true. We are soldiers, soldiers, soldiers of a heavenly king. We are soldiers, soldiers, and we'll make his praising ring. We'll make his praises ring forever. So believer, remember this truth especially as we head in the weeks to come. Remember that the armor that has been given to you is coming from God. It comes through the gospel. And might we pray that we would have the strength to just stand firm in this war through the aid that God has so generously and graciously supplied. Let's pray together now as we close. Our Father, what a, what a true joy, what a true gift it is that we not only have your son, not only do we have Christ, but we have forgiveness of sins. We have righteousness. We have hope. We have purpose now in this life. And through Christ, because we are united with him, the same armor and strength that Christ had and possessed in his life has now been given to us. Father, we are unworthy of that to say the least. And we pray that we would put on that armor that we will look to in the weeks to come. And that we would remember our strength that comes through the gospel and our savior who has laid down his life for us. Let that motivate us, Father. May that inspire us to stand firm and to fight the good fight of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.